Well, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter, I think it's one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is that most of the time we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Uh, we want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let Him speak to us. Now, as I mentioned last week, as we jumped back into 1 Peter and looked at the command from God to submit to government and honor the emperor, one of the things that expository preaching does, <clears throat> preaching like this, is it forces us to go through texts that I would not typically, typically choose on my own. Uh, Garrett and I went to a conference this past week in Kansas City, and one of the preachers there was talking about this exact thing. And he said, listen, if I was an itinerant preacher going from church to church or conference to conference, I would never choose to open up my Bible to 1 Corinthians and just preach on head coverings. But friends, it's there. And when we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll deal with it. But as we turn to our text this morning, it's another text that I would not have chosen on my own. Oh, friends, it is inspired by God breathed out by him, profitable for us today. And so that's our wrestle. Okay, God, if this is true, we believe it is, that your spirit carried Peter along and wrote these words, not only to the Christians in Asia Minor, but to us today. Lord, help us see what it means. And so we turn now to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, as Peter's writing again to these Christians, telling them to see themselves as strangers and exiles. And that lens should shape the way that they interact in the world. This is the majority of Peter's letter telling them that because of what Jesus has done for you, 1 Peter 1 through 2.10, that then changes the way that you live for him, that you should live as exiles in a hostile world. And so he's showing then that relationship play itself out as exiles in relationship to government. And then here in our text this morning in relationship to slaves and their masters in verses 18 through 25. So I want to read it first. Uh, and then we'll jump in. 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Earlier this spring, I was at a pastor's retreat and was getting lunch with a few pastors, one of which is one of my favorite preachers in America today. His name is H.B. Charles. He's a pastor in Jacksonville at Shiloh uh, Baptist Church. Wonderful pastor. He's been pastoring for decades. Wonderful preacher. Um, he's in his 40s or 50. African-American brother. Good. He's becoming a friend. And I just thanked him for his ministry and was asking him what they were preaching through. And he said, they're finishing up 1 Peter. And I said, H.B., I'm going to be preaching 1 Peter later. 
He said, oh, that's, that's wonderful and terrifying all at the same time. I said, what did you do when you got to chapter 2, verses 18 to 25? And he said, Caleb, I preached the text, and our people were fed by it. I said, well, HB, what do you do in September 17th, later this year? Would you like to come preach it to our people? He said, not a chance. <laughs> Nevertheless, friends, again, I think that if we walk into the Bible and feel like we need to be apologetic for who God is, or walking with the wrong posture, God is someone who's proven himself to be good. He really is. The Lord is good. Taste and see for yourself. When we come to texts like this, we need to see the problem is not in God's lack of goodness. It's in our lack of understanding what he's saying. So we don't have to be ashamed of what God's saying here. What we do need when we have those questions, here's what I found in my faith. When I read this at the end of the week and I'm like, Lord, what are we going to do? And begin to dive in to see what God has said here. Begin to see on the other side of it just how good he truly is. And so how do we get there? Well, as we get there, I want us to look at this verse and, or these texts. And I want us to look um, in six different ways of what God is saying here. Now, somebody asked me, Caleb, do you always preach in three points? I was like, well, no. I just, I guess how it normally works out. And so to prove that, last week we had two points. This week I'm making up for it with six. Um, I think what Peter's getting at, and we've got to do a lot of work to get there. What Peter's getting at here is he is showing and writing to particular people, we'll get to who he's writing to, but he's getting this idea that followers of Jesus should respond to unjust suffering and mistreatment just like Jesus did. And that they are to be motivated by favor, instructed by example, freed by justice, empowered by the cross, and comforted by Jesus. That's our outline for the day. That we're going to first need to understand that this text has to be understood in context. We'll see that in verse 18. Then we'll see that we have to be, in order to do that, that we've been commanded to do, we have to be motivated by favor. Verse 19 and 20. Then we're instructed by example. We are freed by justice, empowered by the cross, and comforted by Jesus. Those are our six points as we walk through. But I think what Peter's getting at is this command that followers of Jesus should respond to unjust suffering and mistreatment just like he did. And friends, in some ways, we've all experienced being mistreated at some point. Maybe it's in the workplace, experiencing harassment, unfair treatment, wage theft, unjust termination, or being passed over with a promotion based on discriminatory reasons. Maybe it's in a school, maybe you're a student in elementary school, middle school, high school, and you have felt mistreatment by those in authority over you, whether it be a teacher, administrator, or a coach. And maybe you've experienced this mistreatment from those who are meant to protect you, having seen or experienced for yourself police brutality, excessive force, wrongful arrest, or maybe even witnessing wrongful executions. Now, friends, whatever the situation might be, we've all experienced or seen some level of injustice. We've all felt what it feels like to be mistreated. And that's a given because we live in a Genesis 3 world that's damaged. It's cursed by sin. But the question remains, how then should Christians respond as they receive that mistreatment? Christians are not exempt from that. 
It's not like following, uh, signing up with Jesus gets you out of the difficulties in life. If anything, it makes it more difficult as we were then to respond in ways we wouldn't naturally respond to. That's what Jesus says. You want to follow me? It's not, hey, pick up a lazy chair and follow me. It's pick up a cross. Christianity doesn't exempt you from suffering. The question is then, as Christians don't escape that reality of injustice and mistreatment, how should Christians react when they experience it? Of course, I think that's the question that our text addresses today. In order to get there, we have to first understand what Peter's saying in this context. We have to understand what it is he's saying, understanding it in context. This is verse 18. He's writing, remember, a letter to a particular people, to these Christians scattered across in churches in Asia Minor, those that were some of the earliest forms receiving persecution from those around them. Peter's writing to them, and he's writing to these people that were household slaves, and he's telling them, in this situation, here is what you are to do in your situation as a Christian. Here's how you are to live. Now, before we get to what this means, I think we've got to spend a little bit of time about what it doesn't mean. Because you can already probably hear the way in which this passage has been misused and weaponized in the past. I can almost shake thinking about men holding their Bibles, reading this passage we're looking at to slaves that they owned as they beat them for something that they didn't do. Trying to justify their actions and silence the ones that they are oppressing and abusing. Or people who have been trapped in abusive relationships, particularly women in domestically abusive relationships. The way in which this text would be used to silence them and say, oh, you need to just be quiet and suffer in silence. Look at what the text says. That's what it says. That's what you need to do. You can feel the weight of of the way in which this text has been weaponized in the past. So we need to take some time to look and see what this text doesn't mean to allow not just this verse, but also other parts of the Bible to help us inform what's going on here. And this is just an important Bible study tool. The three most important things when studying the Bible, one is context. The second thing is similar, it's context. The third thing is, is also strikingly similar, it's context. If you rip this thing out of its context and hold it up, it's true of any verse. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. But when you do the work to see how this fits into the rest of this letter, and then begin to allow the rest of the Bible to inform and help us interpret the Bible. Oh, friends, we begin to see clearly what things are and are not saying. So what this text doesn't mean. First, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that slavery is good. This is no justification for slavery, particularly American chattel slavery. When we think of slavery, I think we automatically import what happened here in this country at the very beginning into what Peter's saying here. Peter had no context for what would later become American chattel slavery. These household slaves were different in its context. It wasn't chattel slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery was status-driven and not race-based. It was different. One was born a servant. Prisoners of war would become servants. Unpaid debts also led to servanthood. Others were sold into slavery by kidnappers. But being a slave did not mean that you were doomed to a miserable life in every situation. Many servants were often more educated than their masters, were professionals with servants of their own. In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was not a permanent status. There was a way through manumission to be able to acquire your own freedom. And so it is different 
So we need to not just simply automatically push this in because, friends, American chattel slavery from the very beginning has been spoken clearly against by the Scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New. And as we go through today, I'm going to be giving Scripture references. You can flip through your Bible if you're like really feeling on fire today. But what I would encourage you to do is as I give the reference, just jot it down um, so that you don't get kind of hung up trying to figure out where Deuteronomy is or anything else. So just jot down the reference as we go through. But to see that from the very beginning, American chattel slavery was spoken clearly against by the scriptures. This is in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24-7, in the Old Covenant. We hear this, if a man is discovered kidnapping one of his Israelite brothers, whether he treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. In the Old Testament, to kidnap someone from where they lived or from their family and force them into slavery was condemned, was, a, was an act deserving of death. And friends, this is the same in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, Peter's writing about people who are living ungodly, sinful, lawless, rebellious, unholy, and irreverent lives. And then he gives a list of things there in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 that are contrary to sound teaching. Murderers, people who kill their fathers and mothers. And in that, he includes those who are slave traders, who are enslavers, who have kidnapped men, man-stealing from where they lived, from their families, forcing them into slavery. Uh, Friends, when it comes to slavery in our past, which we have to stare at, both not only as our history, but also as our church. Uh, Friends, it's not just non-Christians who would have taken this Bible and used it against slavery, those who were slaves. Friends, it's some of the people that people love to quote, pastors, preachers, and authors would take this and misuse it as well. We need to be honest and we need to repent uh, corporately to see the way in which the church here in America has gotten this wrong. Uh, Friends, we need to step in and see the way in which this has been used and misused against something the Bible has spoken so clearly against. Slavery is not good. Friends, just because Peter doesn't condemn slavery here does not mean that he condones it. Again, this was a small fledgling faith as he's writing to these Christians scattered across Asia Minor. There was already slander against Christians overthrowing the government. This was slavery was an institution in the Greco-Roman world. And the primary thrust of Christianity was not to overthrow the social order, but to go and make disciples. And the belief that as those disciples spread, people would begin to see the world in a Christian way. And would see the evil in the world and begin to act accordingly. As true as we look at church history, the ones that led the charge against slavery were those who read their Bibles correctly. Every single person's made in the image of God. Every person. We cannot own someone else as property. There is no distinction of, of, of people's worth. God has stamped value And every individual, no matter what color of skin they may have, or no matter where they may be located, no matter where their socioeconomic status is, if they're in the womb, outside of the womb, in a prison cell, outside of the prison cell, in a nursing home, outside of a nursing home, Christians see the worth of every human being. And as this gospel spreads, it begins to take down these institutions. And that's exactly what happened. So there wasn't a frontal assault against slavery in the scriptures. But friends, the seeds that brought it down are all throughout the Bible. 
So we need to understand that this is not condoning slavery, that slavery is good. The second thing we need to understand and what this text doesn't mean is it's not saying that you shouldn't take any recourse to injustice. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't take any recourse to injustice, meaning that it doesn't mean that if you receive injustice, you are to just suffer silently, don't say anything. To love your enemy means that you won't blow the whistle. If you're in the workplace and maybe you've received sexual harassment from one of your coworkers or from your boss, this text does not mean not to go to HR and report that. Otherwise, that's not what this says. There's a ton of places we could look. I mean, I'll just look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus instructs his disciples to confront those who've sinned against you. When a brother or sister sins against you, go and bring their sin to them. If they repent, you've won them over. If not, you bring two or three. If they repent, you've won them over. If not, you tell to the church. That's how serious Jesus takes this sin against one another within his church. And if they ultimately don't repent, oh friends, it says to remove them from this congregation, to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do you know what motivates that whole process? Love does. Love for that person blinded by their sin and love for the name of Jesus and the purity of his church. It motivates us to confront. Part of the problem, I think, with this whole conversation is that so many of us have such an anemic understanding of what love is. That we have reduced love down to just niceness. To love your neighbor, to love your enemy, means you won't say anything that would make them uncomfortable. It might be difficult for them. Oh, friends, love doesn't then say you shouldn't take any recourse to injustice when you receive that. God has given us mechanisms to be able to go and confront this. Not only for justice, but also for their good. So I would continue in this and potentially harm other people. So that's not what this text is saying. Why? Because this text was written to people that had no recourse to injustice. You gotta remember, this was a letter written to people who were enslaved by their masters. As they then were abused, they didn't have an HR department to go to. So Peter wasn't telling them what to do in every situation. He wasn't saying that in every, in every case, every Christian for all times must go exactly like this. This was written to people in this context that had no recourse. So don't pull it out and begin to apply it and say, well, we can never then confront those that we experience injustice from. Again, this is the same for those who may be in an abusive relationship. And I want to speak just directly to you right now. That there may be a spouse, more than likely a woman, as statistics show, that is here this morning in a relationship. And maybe you hear this passage and maybe you come to the conclusion that God has called you to this and you need to continue to just be in this relationship. But friends, God has given you a recourse to justice. He's not told you to stay silent and to suffer silently. But part of the way in which you love the one who is oppressing you right now is to speak out. And part of the way in which God has given his church to be able to step in and care for your soul is to have elders who want to come alongside and lock arms with you in this fight for justice and in your safety. So do not stay silent. Do not read this as though you shouldn't take any recourse to injustice. That's not what the Bible teaches. Again, remember the context. This was written to a group of people that had no recourse. The third thing which we have to see that this isn't saying, again, I've already mentioned this, alluded to it, is it doesn't mean that you should stay in abusive situations. It doesn't mean that you should just stay, suffer silently and not leave. Maybe, again, maybe it's a question of domestic abuse or maybe it's a, a job in which your boss mistreats you, but you read this text and you're like, well, as a Christian, I've got to stay here. 
I'm afraid that's not what this means. Again, there, there's a number of places we could go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I think is the clearest for us. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth specifically about slavery. And here's what he says. Were you called, meaning becoming a Christian, were you called while a slave? Well, don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. This is Paul writing to a group of people that maybe had the opportunity for manumission, to be able to purchase their freedom, to not be in slavery anymore, to remove themselves from that situation. Paul goes, if you can do that, by all means, take the opportunity. Why? Because he who called you by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Do you hear underneath, again, what the New Testament is saying? That even those who in the Greco-Roman context that were owned as a slave, Paul's going, no, 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 no. In the Lord, you are free. Brother, sister, don't let it concern you that you're a slave right now. You're a freed man in Christ. You hear again underneath the, the poison that would bring down the tree of slavery. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave, for you were bought as a price. Do not become slaves of people. Paul's saying, if you can get freedom, by all means, get it. Take any opportunity. And so if there is recourse for you and the injustice that you're experiencing, oh, friends, you can take that recourse, pull that lever, report your boss to HR, come talk to an elder, to the police about an unsafe situation that you're in. That is not disobeying this text. Friends, that's obeying and honoring God, protecting and bringing to light the sin of the one that's oppressing you and leading others to safety as well. So that's what this text doesn't mean. It doesn't mean those things. And as we go through it, remember all those in the back of your head. So what does it mean? What does this mean then? Again, I've already mentioned at the beginning, well, I think what Peter's writing to is a group of people that had no recourse. They had no lever to pull. They were in this situation. And what Peter is saying is there is still a way in this situation to follow Jesus. There is still a way to follow in his steps. To endure grief by continuing to do good when suffering unjustly by those in authority over you. Even when they were beaten by their masters, even though they were doing good, Jesus still speaks to them. And I am incredibly, I, I, honestly, as I began to see this, I began to become incredibly comforted by seeing that there is no situation in the world that Jesus does not enter into. Christianity is not a religion for when life is going okay. That in the worst imaginable situation, Jesus steps in and goes, there is still a way to follow me here. He makes sense not only in the good times, but I would even argue especially in the hard times. And so this text for us is more akin and more closely related to how Corey Ten Boom would live in a concentration camp in World War II and treat the soldiers who were over her than it is for us today with a difficult boss or an abusive spouse. She had no recourse. So as she followed Jesus, how was she to live? And you just read her biography and she exemplifies this text. We are still called to follow Jesus even when we experience the most extreme injustice. We are still called to do good. Friends, I think this is no different than Peter taking the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and applying it to this situation to the people that he knew in Asia Minor. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this in verses 27 and 28. Luke 6, verse 27 and 28. 
Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You stare at that long enough, and man, it steps all over your toes. Again, at the conference that Garrett and I were at this past week, one of the speakers was talking about the strange way in which some churches champion the fact that their, their preacher is not afraid to step on people's toes. He said, first of all, it's kind of odd. It's like, is that what, is that what people want? Um, but second of all, what that usually means is that their preacher doesn't like or loves to step on other people's toes and not their own. Friends, Jesus doesn't play favorites as he brings his kingdom to bear. It presses on every single one of us. And this one, goodness, maybe as much as any as I've seen in a long time. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. I think Peter heard that. And as he looked at these Christians scattered across Asia Minor and knew the situation that some of them were in, having no recourse for justice, experiencing mistreatment, he then took the words of his rabbi, the words of his savior, empowered by the spirit and applied them, that truth of that text into their lives to tell them, continue to follow Jesus even when those in authority over you mistreat you. Friends, this command in 1 Peter isn't just for people that are in the situation of slaves to their masters. No, it's for every Christian. In the very next chapter of 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 17, Peter's going to expand this to every Christian. That even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter expands it into every Christian going, we're all going to experience mistreatment. And how do we respond? Don't respond to being insulted with insults. Don't respond to being mistreated by mistreating them. Don't respond to evil done against you with evil done back to them. Do not sin when those in authority over you mistreat you. The call to follow Jesus has no exemptions in this life. Just because we have been sinned against does not then give us an excuse to sin against others. And that's, that's hard. It's hard for me. Again, I'm not talking about whenever people are just may frustrate you or there's miscommunication. But when you are sinned against, there is this evil part of Caleb that begins to rise up. And the thing that I want to do is I want to sin back. Part of it may be in a right desire for justice. But more often than not, it's just to get even. I want to feel better. I want to lessen this sting by inflicting my own. Sometimes it's in huge situations. Sometimes it's with an argument with a spouse. And if you don't argue with your spouse, it's just because you're not honest and you don't talk to one another. Talk, talk to one another. We're going to get into disagreements. And in that moment when you are sinned against, what Peter is saying here is that when you're sinned against, there is never a time when we are justified to sin back. We are to continue to do good even when, especially when we are mistreated. And even in the situation when it's then those with those in authority over us. Bosses, police, teachers, coaches, or parents. My friends, just think, especially, I think, particularly in the workplace, so many opportunities to be mistreated. And we feel it. And what do we want to do? Well, we want to begin to talk about the one who mistreated us. We want to begin to gossip or slander. 
maybe take the wrong and elevate it, maybe changing some facts so it makes us look more like a victim and make them look worse than they actually were. There's a desire in us for vengeance. Bitterness begins to settle in. Rage begins to rise. Oh, friends, it's so human, but it's not Jesus. So how are we supposed to do it? That's the command, and it's not just to slaves and masters. It's to all of us. When we're mistreated, we are to respond like that. We are to respond when we are sinned against. We are to respond with love. We are to respond with prayer. We are to respond with blessing. How in the world can we do that? I don't know, just for me, as some of these verses that I've seen in the New Testament, I hear that and I'm like, how do I do that, Jesus? How can we face injustice like that? Again, no matter how small or large it might be, this response feels like you would need some kind of otherworldly power to be able to do it because we can't do it on our own. Friends, that's exactly right. Because we must not forget that we are bound for another world. Peter's writing saying that you are to live as strangers and exiles here. Your life should look like you're bound for another world. You are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, empowered by the Spirit. You cannot do this on your own, but God has not left you to do it on your own. In this text alone, we see not only the command, but Jesus giving us five things for us to be able to accomplish this. I'm going to go through these quickly. You may go, I thought you said you had six points. We're on point number one. I'm going to go through these more quickly. Again, we had to make sure we got those pieces in place to see what he's not saying, what he is saying. And now we get to the question going, well, how are we supposed to do this? What has Jesus given us? Well, friends, the first thing we see is that he has given us this command. And not only given us the command, but given us the motivation. That we should be motivated by favor. Motivated by favor. Now, what in the world does that mean? Great question. Look at verses 19 and 20. For, and Peter's connecting the command in verse 18 now to this motivation. For, it brings favor. We'll come back to that word. It brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, because of an awareness of God, because we make a volitional decision because of our relationship to God to endure grief from suffering unjustly, that response brings favor to us. And Peter's saying, you can live this way because favor is coming. He continues, verse 20, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and you suffer and you endure it, this brings, there's a word again, favor with God. Peter's writing of this motivation saying that you can desire this favor in living this way. Now, what does this mean? Now, there's lots, lots we could talk about, but if you look at this word, this word in the Greek is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Luke 6, loving your enemies. In Luke chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says here. Again, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And he says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? That word credit is the same word that Peter used that's translated as favor. What credit is that to you? Continues, if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? So again, I think that Jesus and Peter are thinking the same situation, the same motivation. Jesus continues, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So what is this favor or credit that Jesus and Peter are talking about? 
Well, Jesus gets to the very end of Luke chapter 6, verse 35. And he says this, that when you do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return, then your reward will be great. I think what Jesus and what Peter is saying is that as we live a life here that follows in the footsteps of Jesus, we live in such a way that is accruing for us a reward that will be great in heaven, an inheritance that we will experience in heaven. That as we follow Jesus, that there is real reward that we accumulate that we will then experience to varying degrees in heaven. And you go, well, how in the world are we going to get to heaven? Are you saying, and we're not going to just all be equal? Some people have more reward. Some people have less reward. Won't we be jealous? Well, we won't be because there won't be sin in heaven. But how it works out, I have no idea. I'm just telling you, this is what I see. And I see it in multiple places throughout the Bible. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says the same thing. Or later, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, again, says similarly that we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction. He's also talking about suffering. Because earlier he talked about being afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. And he describes this as a light and momentary affliction that is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That Paul is saying as you walk through the affliction of this world and you walk through it as Jesus did, it is producing this weight of glory and reward that you will experience in eternity. And so we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Peter's writing to these people, trapped in the situation with no recourse, and he's telling them, if you follow the footsteps of Jesus, friends, I know the steps are hard, but there is a reward that is coming. There is a credit, a favor that is coming if you endure and follow in the steps of Jesus. That we are motivated, and that's a good motivation to hold on to. Why do I say that? Because Jesus says it, Paul says it, and Peter says it. It's not selfish to go, I want to follow Jesus, and there'll be reward at the end. To see that this is all going to be worth it. My friends, this is the example that he gives. It will all be worth it. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. He talks about this, etern- this, this inheritance, this coming, this living hope that's being guarded for us. It will all be worth it. I remember whenever Lee and I were getting married, or just before we were getting married, we were getting premarital counseling. And we were just going through some of the stresses of planning a wedding. We were in two different places. There were details, logistics, guest lists, invitations, addresses, uh, all sorts of logistics. It can get very stressful. It shouldn't be, but it is. There it is. This is the life that we live in. We're getting stressed. I'm talking to my premarital counselor, just kind of like, here's, here's what's going on. This is, this is difficult. Like, Lee and I are also like doing this thing called arguing. Is this okay? And he says, Caleb, listen. I'm telling you, that it's gonna, you're going to go through this. Every couple in varying degrees goes through this. But there's going to be a day when you're going to be at the end of an aisle. And you're going to see her turn that corner. And you're going to see her face. And it will all be worth it. It was such good advice. Because in that moment when I saw her face, everything else melted away. There was my bride. It was all I saw. Friends, I think what Peter's doing here is he's coming down to people trapped in suffering. 
with no recourse for hope. And he's telling them, guys, I know what you're going through. In varying degrees, every Christian goes through this. But listen to me. There's going to be a day whenever you turn the corner and you will see your great bridegroom down the aisle and you will see his face. And when you do, it will all be worth it. Hold on to the hope that's coming. Not only are we motivated by reward, we're also instructed by example. Also instructed by example. Peter knows that we can't do this on our own willpower. Let's just grit and bear it. Let's hold out hope. It'll all be worth it. Jesus is a, Peter is a good pastor. Turns our eyes to Jesus to give us the real fuel to be able to live a life like this. And showing us his example in verses 21 through the first part of 23. He says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Friends, that's the Christian life summed up. That you are called to follow in his steps. How did he respond? That's how you're to respond. How did he act? That's how you're to act. I grew up in the 90s, so I grew up in the WWJD phase. I mean, those bracelets were everywhere. I think they're coming back now. My niece has one, so I guess they're like back around. I don't know. I see some of the high schoolers nodding right now. That's what TikTok tells me. I don't know. But that bracelet, don't let it be trite. Friends, this is the Christian life. What would Jesus do? We are to follow in his steps. And how did he respond when he was treated unjustly? Verse 22 tells us he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus responded without sin, which implies there is a way to be treated unjustly and to sin. Again, we're not just given a pass, but we are to follow in the steps of Jesus. As a good leader, he only calls his followers to go where he's already been. And think of the movie that came out a couple years ago, Top Gun Maverick. I was, I was chided by some for talking about Lord of the Rings too much last week. I gave like a five-minute synopsis. Um, I got carried away. So anyway, I'm not going to do that again. Top Gun Maverick, it was a sequel to about a movie about Tom, Gu- Tom Cruise flying planes. And at like 68 years old, he's still cooler than I will ever be. That's the summary of <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. But in it in particular, he has a group of students that he is teaching them how to do this particular mission. And everyone thinks it's impossible. Can't do it. So what does he do? He gets fired because he was going to do this thing that nobody could do. And when he was fired, he went and stole a plane, got in the plane, and went and did the exact course that everyone said wasn't possible. So instead of just telling them to keep trying harder and doing better, he went first and then he told them to follow him. Oh friends, Jesus is a good leader. He doesn't look at his people and just say, do better, try harder. You need to love your enemies. White knuckle and grip. Jesus went first. He did it. And then he encourages and invites us to follow him. In his example, that he suffered for you. Friends, see the length that God went to in order to offer you salvation. See his love on display as he suffered Not only because he couldn't help it. It's not because he didn't see Judas' betrayal coming. He wasn't outwitted. He wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of a sudden the soldiers show up. He's like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. We're caught off guard. Peter, get your sword. Cut off everyone's ear. We've got to make an escape. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Oh, friends, he didn't suffer because he was outsmarted or overpowered. 
Look at our text. Verse 21. He suffered for you. And there has never been a suffering like the suffering of Jesus. The only one without sin. The only one who is truly spotless. A blameless criminal. Receiving the injustice of this world and the wrath of God. One hymn puts it this way. See the destined day arise. See a willing sacrifice. Jesus to redeem our loss hangs upon the shameful cross. Friends, he was willing. And what made him go to that suffering? Friends, it was for you. His flesh removed from his back by the whips and shards of metal. His body bearing thorns and nails and piercing spear as water mingled and flowed together with his blood. And there on that old and rugged cross, the punishment meant for all those who trusted in him was poured out completely on him as he exhausted the wrath of God in your place. He drained the cup of pain for his people. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God for sinners slain. Friends, he suffered for you. Christian, never lose sight of that. Never let that become ordinary. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, oh, I hope you see this today. You see God's love for you and you see the length that he went to to offer you the forgiveness of your sin and to reconcile a relationship and to bring you back to him. And that you would turn from this world and follow in his steps, trusting him as savior and king. Friends, we are instructed by his example. Because how did he respond in the face of all of that injustice and suffering? He hung there on the cross, not in bitterness and in rage, but looking at the men who were actively killing him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He loved his enemies. He blessed them. And friends, we've been instructed by his example. But not only are we instructed by his example, we also freed by justice. Freed by justice. Look at the very end of verse 23 there. As Jesus did all of this, look at what, how he was able, one of the ways he was able to do this. He did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. It's so important that we see this here. Jesus doesn't look at his enemies and go, ah, they'll just get away with it. Jesus knows that justice will come. And he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. To love your enemies is to not let people get away with sin. Friend, God is a righteous judge. He never sweeps sin under the rug. Evil is never gotten away with. Injustice is never not found out. And we can entrust ourselves to him going, okay, God, you are the one who will bring justice so I don't have to. Amen. It changes the way in which we are able to relate to those who are sinning against us. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. And I haven't tried so hard right now to not have a Marvel reference, so I'll just move on. 
Friends, do not avenge yourselves. How? How can we not step in whenever we've been wronged? How can we not avenge ourselves? Well, here's how. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, this is God speaking now, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. How can we be freed to have a relationship like that with the people who have sinned against us? Friends, if we are committed to and understand the justice of God, which means that everyone will one day stand before God as their judge. You're not going to have others around you advocating for you. It's you and the judge. And in that moment, you will either have hidden yourself in Christ, all of your sin paid for on that cross, or you will have to answer yourself for every sin, every act of evil, every act of injustice. And we stand condemned before Him. And so for those who have received that injustice, friends, the the call to love your enemies is not a call to say, we'll let them get away with it. But it's the commitment to know that God will bring justice either in their life as he pours his wrath out on them in an eternity in hell or if they've trusted in Jesus it will have been poured out on Jesus in their place and we can trust his justice will come to bear and we don't have to be the ones to do it we are then freed you heard Paul in Romans 12 we're free to love our enemies to feed them to give them something to drink It changes the way in which we can interact. We see this so clearly in the life of David in 1 Samuel. He was running for his life from Saul, the king, who was trying to kill him. In a position of authority, trying to kill David. David, with a few of his men, were running through the desert. And they were one day hiding in a cave. It was a cave that uh, in the wilderness in En Gedi. When Lee and I went to Israel a few years ago, we got to stay in that wilderness. And we saw caves all around. It was incredible to think, could this be the cave where this story in 1 Samuel 24 happened, or where David wrote some of his psalms. It gives you a picture for this story. As David and his men were hiding, 1 Samuel 24 says this, that Saul was chasing him, and Saul came to the sheep's pen along the road, and there was a cave there, and he went in to relieve himself. The Bible's just, there it is. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, and so they said to him, uh, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. They're back there, I don't know, hanging out, talking, doing whatever else. And all of a sudden, they hear something. They get quiet. They look over, and there's Saul. God has handed you over to him. David, look at this open door. This is it. They even quote this promise. This is the day the Lord's told you about. But David goes, no, 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 no. That's not what you're supposed to do. David goes, he sneaks up, tears, uh, gets a sword, tears a piece of uh, Saul's robe, which is, what's, I'm like, Saul, how'd you not feel that? Whatever, anyway. David gets a piece of his robe, secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and goes and confronts Saul just a little bit afterwards. And here's what he says to Saul in 1 Samuel 20, 24, verse 12. Saul, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. David knew that because he was being sinned against, it did not give him the freedom to sin against him. But his commitment to God's justice, 
his belief and trust in God's faithfulness to bring vengeance on all those who've committed these acts of evil freed him to engage with his enemy in an otherworldly kind of way. And aren't these the moments whenever these situations or these stories get shared across social media platforms? Someone in a courtroom whose loved one was murdered looking at the eyes of the one who killed them and looking at them and going, I forgive you. Friends, there's something so powerful in that because it's so contrary to the way the world can live. There's no category for that. But that's exactly what Peter's saying, again, in this whole section in the letter, that we are to live as strangers in this world. Our light is supposed to shine differently so that Gentiles might see them and glorify God. Friends, that's what happens when we walk in this way, in the words of Jesus in Luke 6, in the words of Peter in 18 to 25. When we live in this way, it's such a strangeness to the world because there's no category for how to be able to do that. That we can live freed by justice. Fifth, that we live as we are empowered by the cross. Empowered by the cross. Verse 24, Peter says this, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You hear Peter all through this section going back and referring to and referencing Isaiah 53. Which Marty read just a little while ago. And Peter's taking the understanding that Jesus is the suffering servant and saying, this is the example that we are to follow. It's by his wounds that you have been healed. His wounds have not only forgiven you, they have healed you. Not only taken you from death, but also brought you to life. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's that idea of substitution again. That he took our place bore our sin. And what does that do? Well, friends, that changes the way in which we live so that we can die to sins and then live for righteousness. Our sin has been canceled so we can now conquer it. That's the only kind of sin that we can conquer is one that's already been canceled. As one hymn put it this way, that he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Friend, the only way that we can live a life in which we can fight our sins against bitterness, our rage, our desires for vengeance, the only way we can battle against that is understanding that our sin, that sin, even as we respond to those who have sinned against us, that sin has been dealt with completely on the cross. It has been canceled. It is finished. We are forgiven. And we can now begin to live a different kind of a life because we are not going trying to say, God, look how good I can be. Would you save me? We look and we go, no, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that... We can now die to our sins and live for righteousness. We can have a different kind of a life here in Christ alone. It's a song that we just sang just before this. That there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory... Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, that we can now stand as we fight this battle, we are fighting a battle that's already been won. 
that we live empowered by the cross, seeing our sin has been dealt with so that we can actually now can die to sin and live for righteousness. We now actually can follow in the footsteps of Jesus because all the ways in which we faltered have already been dealt with. And we know the only sin that can, we can conquer is a sin that's already been canceled. It's when we understand that that we begin to live this supernatural kind of life. And that we must be empowered by these supernatural means. That we live in view of the mercies of God. And present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to the Lord. But we only do that in view of the cross. To see that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That our old man, this this part in us that's bent towards fighting for ourselves. It's been crucified. And we can live to a different life. We're empowered by the cross. And finally, we see that we've been comforted by Jesus. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray. Again, quoting Isaiah 53. But you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, our text closes with a clarifying description of who we are returning to. You see, we're all like sheep going astray. Our hearts are prone to wander, every single one of us. But when you return to Jesus, we need to answer the question, who will you find when you get there? Whether for the first time or the hundredth time or the millionth time. Will you find an irritated parent? You're seriously still doing this same stuff? I've told you the whole thing in Luke 6. Go read it. Why are you still bitter with the people who are mistreating you? Come on. This is what you're doing. Will we find an annoyed deity just fed up with having to deal with people like us and just keep messing this thing up called the Christian life and following him? Will we find a disgruntled rescuer? Ah, man, I, my father told me I needed to save these people and they are just the worst, but I had to do it. Friends, we need to see that when you return, you return to the shepherd and to the overseer of your soul. The one who comforts you, the one who cares for you, the one who protects you, the one that keeps you, the one that holds you, the one that feeds you, and the one that leads you home. This is who you return to. He watches over you at all times, keeping you in his flock, fending off every enemy that would come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He will hold you fast, and nothing, not even you, has the power to be lost from his love. It is a love that will not let you go, because he is a good shepherd. And friends, you hear the tone in which this text is meant to be heard in. To its hearers in Asia Minor, who had no recourse for a situation to get out of. And perhaps even you today, as you walk in bearing the brunt of mistreatment or suffering unjustly, I want you to hear the tone in which this text is meant to be heard. Jesus does not speak through Peter, scolding these slaves to get their act together. No, he he sees this shepherd leaning in and picking up the heads of those who have been abused, those who have been mistreated. And he's looking at them who are just so tired and so hurt. And you can hear the words of Psalm 3.3 here, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And this shepherd of your soul 
holds your head and looks right into your eyes. And he assures you that he knows the pain that you're walking through. That your God is a sympathetic God. One who has felt what you are walking through. Who has cried with you. Who has walked this road before you and is walking with you still. He has you and he will keep you. He knows the injustice you're going through. No matter how great or seemingly small. Friends, it is not unseen by him. So continue to do good as you are motivated by favor, instructed by example, freed by justice, empowered by the cross, and comforted by your good shepherd, our good shepherd. And you can see Jesus stepping in here as the fulfillment of Psalm 23. To be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I shall not want, no matter what situation I may be in. Jesus has not left me. And there is still a way for me to follow him. And even in the worst of situations in this world, we see that God has gone before us and we are just following him. He lets me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil because he is with me. His rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, even those who abuse and mistreat me. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. This is the promise to the people in 1 Peter 2. Oh, and friends, it's the promise to all those who've trusted in Jesus, no matter what situation you may be in, as we return to him, the overseer and good shepherd of our souls. Let's pray.